to Conservation Chronicles. This is Jonah, and today Mariana is not with me. Um, today we have our friend Leon Berman, who I'll introduce in a second. But first, I just kind of wanted to apologize for having such a big gap between episodes. Um, I was in Belize again, and then Mariana was has been dealing with some personal things, and then I was really sick and was trying to record, but I sounded like I was going through puberty. Um, so yeah, and it's just the end of the semester for me and I'm getting ready for my, try to, uh, start my project in Zambia. So I've just been super busy. Um, so that being said, we'll probably only have a few more episodes before I take off, um, to Zambia and yeah, so we'll, we'll try to have a few, um, episodes in the next few weeks. And that's all I have to say about that right now. So, Leon, thanks for joining me. Yep, thanks for having me on. Um, do you just want to give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, so I went to school with Jonah and Mariana in Maine and graduated uh, December of 2016, I think, and moved out west pretty much immediately. Um, I worked on the black bear study with them and then moved out west because there's quite a few more jobs, um, available out here as there's more public lands and research projects going on and stuff. And so I've worked for Utah State University on the Sagehouse project and, uh, worked for Idaho Department of Fish and Game on a couple different projects for them. And currently I've I have another contract with them working with some sagehouse work and then transitioning into fisheries work. So that'll take me into November this year. Cool. And that's um, another reason why there was a delay in an episode because Leon and I were having some technical difficulties recording since he is in Idaho and not as equipped as Marianne and I. It was all my uh, fault. Yeah. But now we have a, a sweet system rigged up where he has like two headphones and a different mic and <laughs> it's really flashy. <laughs> so that's might be a reason that the quality is also lower when he's speaking, <laughs> I imagine. Anyways. Um yeah, so I think we should just get right into our topic today. Um we are going to talk about um, a controversial topic, even though it should not be, um, and it's probably something that um, hmm, makes my blood boil more than anything, so Leon will have to keep me in check. Um, but we're going to talk about... It's not hard to get your blood to boil. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But this, like, this is at the top of the list among plastic and like feral cats, um, which this is sort of the same category. We're going to be talking about feral horses slash burrows. So do like figurines, plastic figurines of wild horses. Does that bother you? (laughs) Yes. My little pony. And then when the kid gets grows older, it just gets thrown away and goes in the ocean. Exactly. Um, (laughs) anyways, so we're going to be talking about feral horses and burrows. Um, we're going to be focusing sort of on the issue in North America. We'll kind of give a few examples of the issue 
elsewhere in the world, but it's a it's a pretty significant topic and issue here in the United States in particular, and um, it's getting a lot of attention, a lot of attention, um, but uh, hopefully that attention will make something happen. Um, but anyways, before before we even start talking about the issue, um, we kind of just want to define some terms because it's really important when we're talking about this topic of horses and burrows that when we say feral horses or burrows and we're when we say horses a lot of times we also just mean burrows so um just understand that but feral we're we're when we say that we're talking about non-native horses and burrows that have been introduced to a landscape and have become invasive somehow where they're causing ecological damage and impacting native wildlife. And this is sort of important because um, in the United States in particular, when we're talking about legislation, these terms mean different things. And wild, when you say wild horses, it doesn't actually really mean a true wild horse. So what, what we're talking about here is the reality of the situation, that these are non-native, they're not wild horses, so we're going to avoid saying wild horses at all costs. As much as is humanly possible, we will try our best. But yeah. It might slip, slip in, in there. there. Yep. Yeah. And also, and like some people may hear in the United States, may hear the term Mustangs, the same thing, just feral horses. Um, in Australia, they are called Brumbies. Um and there's probably lots of other names to them um, around the world. But we're talking about horses, donkeys, burros, brumbies, mustangs, whatever. Non-native equines, basically. Um, okay. So. Just to give a little. St- let's just, st- I think, start off with a, a bit of a. A history of this issue um we're not not even a history of this issue a history of horses because this is critical in understanding why we're using the terms that we're using yeah it helps Um, define depending on where you believe horses came from it helps define the difference between what we're saying a feral horses and a wild horses and understanding the history of where they came from and where domesticated and stuff will help yeah, because it's kind of a it's kind of a complex situation because horses have been domesticated for so long, and the places where you know the original wild horses came from or have been so changed and species have gone extinct. So um, when we say feral horse or or wild horse, it's it's actually it's considered a um, a subspecies of the true wild horse. Um, so basically there's, there's several subspecies. We have Przewalski's horse, which is Equus ferris Przewalski, which is considered the only true wild horse left. There's the tarpon, which is Equus ferris ferris, which is an extinct species. And then there's the domestic horse, which is the same as these feral horses, which is Equus ferris calibus. Um, so like I said, Przewalski's horse is the only 
remaining true wild horse um, that sort of had a brush with extinction, near extinction in the last half of the 20th century. Um, But due to captive breeding and reintroduction, it's been reestablished in several places in Mongolia. And there are some people um, that think that, you know, the ancestor of the Przewalski's horse was actually a, a domesticated horse, but again, this is really complicated. So for our purposes, the Przewalski's horse is the only wild horse left. Um, and the tarpon is sort of this mysterious um, link in the Equisferous complex because it went extinct in 1909 when the last individual died in a Russian zoo. So there's only a couple specimens left where we can get DNA from um, in order to, you know, look at how it's related to modern horses. Um, but there was probably a lot of potential for wild tarpons to interbreed with domestic horses in Eurasia because they occurred on the same landscape. Um, but basically the current belief is that this was... The tarpon was a real wild horse, and it was the ancestor of modern-day domestic horses. And genetic and archaeological evidence suggests that domestic horses, um, the the wild tarpon actually was became domesticated somewhere between 4,000 and 3,500 BC in like modern-day Ukraine or Kazakhstan, and then. By 3000 BC, it was completely domesticated and was spread throughout Eurasia. And so that's how the tarpon and domesticated horses could have been interbreeding because domestic horses were, um, you know, would escape or were sharing, you know, pasture with wild tarpon. So it just sort of convolutes the, the, the issue. Um, and then when we're talking about donkeys, uh, it's a similar kind of thing. It started with a wild ancestor. So... At about that same time, um, the I'm sorry, not at the, not at the same time. Um, prior to 1800 BC, the African wild ass, which is Equus africanus, um, began to be domesticated by Nubian pastoral people in modern day Egypt and Sudan. And the African wild ass still exists. It's a critically endangered species in Northeast Africa, um, but it's thought to be the ancestor of domestic donkeys and was, you know, domesticated along the same process, just a little bit later than the horse. And then by 1800 BC, um, Mesopotamia was sort of the center of donkey breeding and allowed it to sort of spread throughout the world in a similar way that domestic horses did. So due to this long history um, of horses and donkeys in the old world, their role in ecosystems is more complex um, than, you know, places where they've been introduced, like in the Americas or Australia, um, because they've kind of always existed there in a a wild or a domestic state. And so um, kind of complicates the situation. But in the Americas, um, you know, these species didn't exist there. And it wasn't until the 15th century that the conquistadors introduced domestic horses, um, some of which escaped and then became established as feral populations in Mexico and, and 
um, in the United States. And actually, it was officially the first introduction of horses into the New World was in 1493 by Christopher Columbus um, in the West Indies. But it wasn't until probably about 1519 when um, Cortez brought them to the mainland. And then the Spanish, you know, were breeding them and had these major breeding operations as they expanded across North America. And then, of course, horses were either let go or escaped, and that's how they became established. And in the southwestern United States, um, feral horse populations probably became established or probably started around 1598 when a, from a herd, an original herd of 75 horses. And then, you know, they grew rapidly and they just sort of took over. And that's how we get Mustangs or feral horses that we have in the United States now. When you're talking about them escaping and stuff, from what I've read, there was a, the Spanish had conquered the Pueblan people and they staged a revolt back during the early 1600s, I believe, or maybe slightly before that. And historians suspect that uh they raided and took a lot of their stock whether it be cattle or horses or burrows and that was also maybe fed to the expansion of the horse herds and stuff like that in the wild and uh i've also read like uh there's a book the empire of the summer moon it's about like the comanches in texas mostly um the southwest down there and with the southeast i guess and uh they adapted them into their culture pretty quickly um and like spread up if you can imagine like the rocky mountains spreading down to mexico like they spread up (laughs) the edge of the rocky mountains up into the northern tribes like the cheyenne or the sioux or the nez perce or stuff like that and supposedly they adopted them very quickly in their culture and like by the time white settlers or explorers came from the east, like Lewis and Clark and those guys, it had only been maybe 100 to 150 years that the Native American tribes had horses. So it was pretty amazing. Like They write about the horsemanship and how they integrated them into their everyday lives. Like Pretty amazing that they basically they took it and ran in 50 to 100 years pretty cool to yeah see and, that. and how that's just like you know ingrained in people's mind that i mean that that like a, a native american person on a horse is sort of like yeah it's what like people think of as a traditional way of life for them yeah just the stereotypical indian warrior on a horse or you know a village moving with their horses on uh Traverses and stuff like that. Like, it wasn't that way for very long, at all. Yeah, and that's that's that. It's super interesting, and especially that they, you know, it it changed their culture so much. I mean, from being able to use them as pack animals or for warfare or trade, or even, um, you know, a lot of them abandoned agriculture so that in favor of hunting bison on horseback. And that's another, you know, stereotypical image is them on horseback hunting bison. Yep. Became more nomadic to follow the herds. But it, it kind of that this idea fits with this whole, um, 
feral horse issue is that, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, people are emotionally attached to horses, but also people have this idea, this false nostalgia that horses, I mean, it's, it's not false. It's true that horses were part, this part of American history, but, but that they were they always think here that it was exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so they think, you know, that they need to remain on the landscape because, oh, they're a part of our natural heritage and stuff like that. But, you know, really it was just this small window of time. And I think, you know, Native American adapt, uh, adopting them into their culture and using them for that short window of time has really, you know, made the nostalgia even worse, like made people think that it's more critical to keep these horses on the landscape compared to just, you know, thinking about cowboys or something. If it weren't for Native Americans having used them for that period, I feel like people probably wouldn't have this, you know, romanticized view of horses in the American West as much. Um, but, you know, having them in so involved and integral in their, their cultures during this period, that's why people think this way about horses. Is it true? Do you know anything about like the archaeological history? Wasn't there a type of horse ancestor in the Americas at one point? Um, yeah, so uh, people like to get into the weeds with this one. Um, I but they but they do, but they say that like they went extinct by the time that we're talking about, like the sixteen hundred. Like, yeah, they're like talking the about like faced, Ice Age. Yeah, like short-faced bear and saber-toothed cats and uh, like the long-horned bison. Like they were all part of that suite of animals or whatever. And then they all died off by that. Yeah, time. exactly. That right? Okay. Yeah. So basically there haven't been horses um, in North. There were not native horses in North America. Until the Spanish until the Spanish. Yep. Yeah. Like there weren't any recent ones um, is the point yep. because people try to use that as a justification for, well, there were once horses. Well, there was once like uh, North American lions too, but I don't see anybody wanting to bring them back. So, <laughs> well, there are people that want to, and I think um, actually Camden and I are going to be doing an episode on rewilding. So we will bring that up since oh, it's relevant. Boy. That should be exciting. Because <laughs> people do want to... People... Have you have never no seen Jurassic Park? <laughs> Are you serious? D- <laughs> exactly. It's like the cloning of the woolly mammoth and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, it's just um, like put a cheetah out there. Go for it. No, I mean, I'm pretty sure we talked about it in our... I feel like we talked about it in our capstone class yeah, in Unity, did. but... Yeah, we did. But, like, it was someone was proposing to legitimately release, like, African lions in, like, the plains of Oklahoma or something absurd like that. It's amazing. Um, Anyways, we'll talk about that in our rewilding episode. All right. Um, Okay. Um, And then, can't leave out the donkeys and the burrows. Sort of a similar history. Um, They just haven't become as widespread as horses. Um. And so, you know, the same thing sort of happened in North America. Um, And then in Australia, 
um, which is sort of more critical than in the United States as far as feral donkeys go. Um, they have a really short history, which is surprising considering how much of a pest they've become. So it wasn't until 1866 that donkeys were brought over as pack animals and then, you know, them escaping and, you know, same kind of thing. The population just exploded, the feral population. And by 1949, they, people started to realize that they were a pest. And, um, the most recent estimate that I found was from 2005. So almost 15 years old was that there were 15 million feral donkeys in Australia. So there's probably I'm sorry, like 5 million, sorry, 5 million. <laughs> so there's probably 15, <laughs> probably 15 million, million right? by now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the last 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> Multiply um, rabbits. Yeah, exactly. And so big issue there. There's certain areas in the United States and in Mexico where, and other places in the world where feral burrows and donkeys are an issue, but Australia sort of wins the prize for that. And then that leads us to the early part of the 20th century where feral horses and donkeys had become a big enough problem for ranchers um, that they started to take some action. The feral horses and donkeys were competing with their livestock for forage out on the, the rangeland, as they call it out here. Um, so due to the mounting pressure, the grazing service who was the predecessor of the BLM agency, the Bureau of Land Management, they began to hire people to remove the horses from public lands. Um, that included shooting, poisoning, um, rounding up and driving them in to be captured. Um, and so in 1946, there was hunting permits issued, and apparently the kill rate exceeded what the horses were able to naturally produce in the wild and so the population began to decline pretty rapidly and um, left about a population of 25,000 by the 1950s. Another uh, contentious issue was that they were being used for the slaughtered for the pet food market and even like I believe glue um, they would use like cartilage and tendons and stuff like that to make glue but um, around that issue and all the killing in general came a lady named Velma Braun Johnston better known as Wild Horse Annie uh, the original crazy horse lady <laughs> kind of like the crazy cat ladies, but for horses. I think everyone knows a crazy horse person. Like your crazy aunt who loves cats or something like that. Everybody has one of those. Yeah. Um, including me. <laughs> uh, so during the 1950s, she lobbied for federal protection of the horses because she felt that the capture and kill methods were inhumane. And... Um, some of those same methods are still being used in Australia, which good for Australia. They should keep doing that. But some people yep. have a problem with that. Kill them all. <laughs> the official stance of 
Conservation Chronicles is Kill the Horses. <laughs> Um, so in 1959, <laughs> under the political pressure, I, President Eisenhower passed the Hunting Wild Horses and Burrows on Public Lands Act, which banned uh, the hunting of feral equids by aircraft or car. We can't just do any drive-bys out there or anything like that. Um, imagine if you imagine if you could still hunt them like that like all these people with their machine guns and stuff now well down in <laughs> texas where you are like they love doing that with hogs so same thing fly around it, it is exactly the same thing fly around in helicopters and shoot hogs but, oh no but people aren't as emotionally attached to hogs so it's more acceptable right right all right so this continued to um be in the public eye and lots of lobbying was going on for further protections and in 1971 President Nixon passed the Wild and Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act which outlined issues over horse ownership on public lands and gave full protection to unbranded um, usually when these horses are privately owned they brand them by like searing their flesh and so you know whose it is so he gave full protection to unbranded so like feral and unowned horses out on the landscape and then it also required the department of the interior and agriculture to protect manage and study horses and burrows the act required management plans to, quote, maintain a thriving natural ecological balance among wild horse populations, wildlife, livestock, and vegetation, and to protect the range from the deterioration associated with overpopulation. So that's like putting them on the same equal priority to wildlife, livestock, and vegetation. Yeah, it, this is so uh, just baffling and um, like just the the wording of that. It's just absolutely contradictory and is concerning that we have legislation that is written like this because you can't maintain a thriving natural ecological balance with a non-native invasive species like those those that that sentence doesn't make sense it's a it's a paradox and the fact that this is this is an actual law is shocking and i think is worse than nixon's uh, watergate scandal <laughs> this is more of a stain on his reputation for me than that cuz this is just like it's just absolutely asinine like i could just go on talking about using all these adjectives to describe how ridiculous this is <laughs> because it's requiring taxpayer dollars to study and protect an invasive species that is harming our natural environment and our actual native wildlife right. and that like that should make people's blood boil as much as it makes my blood boil like your taxpayer money is being used to help an invasive species like Imagine if this was going on to help people from killing Burmese pythons in Florida. 
or like black rats, which are introduced from Europe, no one would have an issue with that. But because it's horses and people, you know, ascribe these, uh, you know, emotions and, you know, project, you know, human attributes and stuff on horses and people are more attached to them, it's okay. Um, and it, it's just, it's atrocious, I, I think. I, I don't even know what else to say about it. Yeah, well, where I grew up, like, owning horses was a big deal. And, like, if any of the high school girls that I grew up with heard you say this, you would be, like, being chased by a lynch mob right now. <laughs> right after you. But yeah. Well, and that's the issue. People don't want, like, people want everything that comes out of everyone's mouth to make them feel good. That's just the way that people are in the 21st century. And when we're dealing with issues like this, like you have to come to grips with reality. And, you know, there is absolutely no logic behind this, what is going on with this issue. The reality is that they are harming the environment and having a negative effect on wildlife. If anything else was doing that, we would remove it from the equation. But because it's horses, all logic just goes out the window. And, um, you know, I, I don't, people need to hear it. Like they need, they just need to be off the landscape. And the best way to do that is to just kill them all because (laughs) as we'll see the adoption program and stuff, other methods, they Mm -hmm. aren't effective. Yep. Um, you want to talk about like how their herds are doing in the U.S. like numbers wise and based on all the astute observations done by all the scientists and stuff put in charge of managing them. Yeah. So um, the current, you know, the fact of the matter is that we don't really know how many horses and burrows there are on the landscape. Um, so the best we have are, are these estimates that are generally based on, um, certain pieces of public land that are managed for horses. So the, the most widely used number currently is that there are probably about 83,000, um, or slightly more horses on the landscape and burrows. And, the population in the United States, United States, approximately doubles every four years, um, in the absence of culling or natural predation. Which, because they're not a native species, there is not native predation. So yeah, doubling every four years. So you know, as we're talking about this right now, it, the population is probably up to a hundred thousand because this. Uh, estimate of 83,000 is, you know, a year or two old and all of that. And that sounds like, Oh, like that's not that many for all of the United States, but it's confined to just 10 States, the majority of which are in Nevada. Um, and so this really high density of horses is what is causing the issue. Yep. Well, even the, the brochure that they have on the Bureau of land management's website they say straight out that um they think only twenty seven thousand can live in balance with the wildlife and livestock on public lands which i know that's not acceptable to jenna gula 
but even they say, you know, that's a, that's a quarter of what, um, the populations are up to right now, which is, uh, pretty unacceptable management levels. But we can talk a little bit about, uh, what kind of impacts they have on the ecosystems that they're in and the environments that they're in, um, because that's also a big concern. You can talk about, like, the historical context and stuff, but it's also important to realize what they're doing or what they have been doing and what they're doing now impacting the native flora and fauna. Um, so they, one of the big ones is that they um, overgraze, and so they're uh, oftentimes even the biologists who study them, they say that they're eating themselves out of house and home, which also means that they're uh, robbing a lot of, you know, say mule deer or rabbits or elk or any number of things that feed on um, the forbs and grasses in those areas. They're not able to get that vegetation either. Um, they trample it, they eat it, they'll... Um, remove that vegetation from the landscape so that actually contributes to um, losing my word eroding the soil and so the when the rains do come they'll actually create a lot more erosion um, they will compact the soil and so that doesn't allow the plants to grow back as quickly they will camp on um, springs is a big one like in these 10 states they're the western states in the US and they are often struggle with um, moisture levels so not struggle but they're just that arid uh, climate and so they don't get that much rainfall a year um, like here in Idaho we get 12 inches in that area where I'm 12 inches of rain a year um, and I'm sure parts of Nevada and California are even less. And so when you introduce a whole other population of animals coming in and they'll camp on a water source, they'll chase off the native wildlife, so like pronghorn antelope and deer and elk, they'll actually chase them off of the water hole. Um, they also say you have a nice uh, pristine little spring that trickles out of the side of the hill. Um the horses come in and spend so much time there, they'll actually like churn the water into the ground. So it just becomes a huge muddy mess um, and they'll spread it all out. And so when other wildlife does come in, they actually can't even hardly get a drink because all the water has been absorbed into the earth. Um, let's see what else. They have also an example of overgrazing is um, in Nevada where they take into eating Joshua trees, which are, if you look those up there, not very friendly or edible. And so you can imagine that if it's that bad for the horses, it's got to be really, really bad for the native wildlife. Um, yeah. Yeah, when I worked in the Mojave Desert um, on bighorn sheep, the you know, our work was focused on water sources because that's where the sheep concentrate and, you know, the other wildlife do as well. And we would either walk up on bur feral burrows or yeah. find them on our camera traps, um, doing just what you said, just camping out there 
you know, for hours or like the entire night, just like wallowing in the mud and, you know, ruining the water. And when you look at the, the native wildlife and you watch them at the water sources, they come in and they'll, you know, be there for a couple minutes and then they leave because, you know, predators or, or whatever. And, but these, because these are not native, they just camp out there and crap all in the water and, and ruin it. And they're keeping wildlife off yep. in a place like the Mojave, where it is, you know, the dry, one of the driest and hottest places on earth. It's even, you know, the situation is even worse because these burrows are keeping wildlife off of the water for these long periods of time. And it's just, it's just unacceptable. And, you know, the number of times we'd walk up over a hill and there'd be those burrows and I'd, you know, it, it, I would, it's a federal crime for me to kill one of those to protect actual wildlife. It's, it's just, it doesn't, you know, it's so illogical that I, I really just can't comprehend it. And I don't understand how people can go along with this. So how many have you killed in the defense of wildlife? Um, I can neither confirm nor deny that I have killed any wild bur- or feral burrows. Just kidding. In, an, in a national preserve. Any, he hasn't killed any that we know of. Yeah. Um, I wish. Yeah. It would bring joy to my heart. I'm, I'm a sicko. Psycho. Um. Yeah, so um, I guess we could talk about the management oh, or real, lack of Real quick, to go back. Another example of the water thing. They actually make it such a like a quagmire or whatever. Um, yeah. It's all mucky and muddy. They'll actually, the horses, there's documented pictures and all that stuff of horses, like several horses at a time being stuck in these wallows. And they actually can't even get a drink or get back out of the mud and so they'll they'll die there like on a navajo reservation i believe they found like at least in the double digits of dead horses around a certain water source because they're stuck up to their knees in the mud and they just couldn't even get to the water so that's just like uh um for the people who think they're doing good on the landscape or they want to keep on the landscape like they're showing us themselves that they they don't belong there. Like they're they're eating themselves out of house and home. They're turning these water sources into death traps almost. And it's a it's easy to see if you look take any time to look at it that they really aren't doing themselves any favors either. But yeah, we yeah, it's go. it's not just the wildlife that's being you know negatively affected. The horses are too. And if you care about them, then you should, you know, realize that. Yeah. Yep. So to go into like the management and uh, what's being done in current day and age, um, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management has, like we talked about, they decided that the maximum acceptable population size is about 27,000 animals. Um, But it's almost 100,000 according to some estimates. So the management, the history of the management is pretty complicated. Um, but basically since the passage of the Wild Horse and Burrow Act in 1971, the management has become more and more restrictive and less effective over time. Um, 
So, because the wild horse advocates did not want excess animals to be destroyed, uh, lethal management almost never occurs anymore. In 1982, the BLM issued a moratorium on culling excess horses, and so they basically began a adoption program to attempt to bring in those extra horses that they couldn't kill anymore legally. So in 1976, a couple of years before that, they began the adopt the horse program. Um, but it still is not an effective tool and they struggle taking the extra horses off landscape as you can tell by their estimates of the population. So in early 2005, the BLM became aware that many excess horses that were adopted were being sold in for slaughter, which led to a temporary suspension of the program. And so that's like going back to the pet food factories or the glue factories. Um, and so shortly after, the program resumed with new requirements to deter adopters from slaughtering animals. So basically you had to be vetted and like certified that as you were adopting the animals, you weren't secretly turning around and selling them off to some factory or shady other dealer. So all the slaughterhouses in response to that were eventually closed. I believe in 2008 or 9, the last one closed. And so this led to a significant decrease in adoption rates. And um, in order to deal with that new problem, they started putting them into holding pens at the expense of, like, under the care of the BLM agency. And the BLM agency is run by taxpayer money, so that leads us to conclude that um, taxpayers in America are funding these holding pens and pastures. So over 46,000 excess horses are being held right now, and probably more than that right now, but 46,000 for sure are being are waiting to be adopted. And most of these never will be adopted because after a certain age, they just aren't desirable for anyone to take. Like foals and young younger horses, like one to three years old, they'll be, they could be adopted and broken and trained to be a good pack horse or a riding horse or whatever. But once they get to a certain age, they, um, a lot of people don't really want to deal with them anymore. So the, Estimated cost of maintaining these excess horses um, in captivity is $49 million every year, which is crazy. And so if this management style continues, it'll cost Americans around $1 billion between now and 2030. So about another 11 years, and it'll cost... $1 billion, which is absolutely insane. Just like think of what good things that money could actually go towards, like all the shortage of research funds for wildlife projects. Man, wouldn't that be nice? Just, I could use it. I could use a chunk of that money. I you could know? use a chunk of that money. <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, yep, it's good. And they're talking about, you know, 
cutting all these federal jobs and all that stuff. Um, like firefighting costs in the West, like runs, I think half or two thirds of the U S forest services budget, like half of their budget every year goes to, I think it's 43%. I believe is the number I've heard goes to fighting wildfires every year. Like that could easily be helped out by that. Or at least part of that forty nine million dollars a year could help a lot. I'm sure. I yeah. I like this is obviously a, an issue in this you know budget item thing. Is if if Donald Trump was aware of this, I feel like he he would go crazy. Like this this has to be something that he's not even aware of <laughs> because this is because this is absolutely illogical. And you should tell him. You know why would he why would he want this? Yeah, let me text him real quick. <laughs> Let me tweet him real quick. <laughs> <laughs> At the real Donald Trump. <laughs> anyway, it's just like, I don't know how, I mean, this is like seriously just, this is like criminal activity in my opinion. Yeah, it is absolutely crazy. Like, I just, yeah, living in a pasture like that, that's not even a great condition for a horse to be living in. And like, for advocates to be okay with that seems pretty backwards and uh yeah sad like anything to avoid death be anything to avoid death because that makes people feel good you know it's all about how i feel personally my emotions that's really what this issue is about and that's what unfortunately most wildlife issues are about but to sort of go back to what you were talking about all those excess horses i i don't remember the exact number but i was watching a video and as you said before, like adoption rates have gone down since, you know, the slaughterhouse, you know, thing was found out. And I mean, I, you know, they're, they're hardly adopting, like it's less than 3000 horses a year and it's been going down every single year. Yeah. So when there's 46,000 horses, you know, how many years is it going to take to get all of those horses out of there? <laughs> yeah. The adoptions decreased. Uh, again, on this brochure thing, like in 1995, 9,700 were adopted. In 2005, 10 years later, 5,700 were adopted. In 2017, 4,000 were adopted. And I think 2018 is like 2,400, something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, it just yeah. decreases very quickly, and it's hard to find a home for just the, the market eventually gets saturated and people don't want to deal with uh, breaking and taking care of a wild horse. Um, so we can talk about some of the other... Futile uh, management methods. Yeah, <laughs> a, attempts to control the wild population. So one of the things that the BLM has explored is fertility control, which horse advocates... Um, say they stand behind. However, the National Academy of Sciences has found that there's no affordable and effective fertility control method. So this has to make you wonder what other kind of management approach is going to be effective. Um, Like, there is examples of fertility control. So, like, they'll dart dart them with a drug so that the mares, the females, um, won't produce eggs or whatever produce infertile eggs and so 
like uh, Shingatique and Aztec Islands on the east coast of the U.S. There's a very small, like, uh, I'd say, like, around maybe, like, 40 to 80 horses, like, pretty close to 100, I think, or less than 100. And on a small population like that, they can control them. They're on an island, like, they can't get away. They're pretty well contained. But in a big landscape like the 10 state in the western U.S., like, that's really not an option at all to cover that large of an area. Yeah, and like the advocates of these fertility control methods, you know, especially like the Humane Society of the United States and PETA who, you know, have all this false information out there about the about these methods, um, they talk about, you know, oh, it does work and they use those kind of situations as examples. But like you said, like in the huge landscape where there's, you know, tens of thousands of these horses, one you're not going to be able to, um, you know, inject enough of these horses to make a difference. And then two, like, you're not going to be able to get close enough to most of these horses. I mean, I've, you know, I've been in places yeah, in Wyoming where you're, you're driving and yeah, exactly. They, you know, they see you coming a couple miles away and they take off before you can even, you know, hardly notice them. So it's, it's just not plausible at all. Um, so moving to Australia where they're doing things the right way, um, generally, um, (laughs) you know, they're, they're moving in the right direction rather. Um, they do have lethal control. Um, and we should say that in addition to the 5 million feral donkeys that are in Australia, there are 400,000 feral horses, which are causing the same you know, negative strain on, you know, causing a strain on native ecosystems. Um, and, you know, they do do some calling. It's controversial, um, particularly because one survey found that only 3% of people in Australia consider them pests. And it's, you know, I imagine that figure is the same, if not lower in the United States, just because people need a reality check they don't have the right information um and they're you know going off of emotions um but they have in australia like i said they have been doing some aerial calls in attempt to impact the overpopulation um but of course there's similar debates going on just not as strong in australia because they actually are getting to kill horses which we are absolutely it's not you know, it's not um, possible here in the United States. Yeah, it's not with even the current option. legislation. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, general populist feeling too. I would say drives it as well. Yeah, not just not just legislation. And it was um, about this time last year, I believe, when the BLM was going through um, their budget review, and they, you know, they you know, requested this much for their budget and they weren't, you know, it was delayed. Them getting their budget was delayed because Congress was saying, you know, listen, BLM, like you're obviously not doing anything. You're not doing any good because, you know, you're not, you don't have this um, 
appropriate management level met, like your management methods aren't working. Right. And so the, the BLM sort of came up with these, it was three or four options, I forget, I don't have it up right now, but these alternatives. And one of the alternatives included culling, but of course that one wasn't selected in the end. So the, you know, at least some people in the BLM, you know, have a reality check where they realize that this is the only way, but it just getting it through Congress is, yeah. is never going to happen. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I um, like, I like Australia's, I believe they do it in New Zealand too, but like, um, with cats, they have, I think we've talked about this before, but like they call cats really hard because, um, they kill a lot of songbirds and ground dwelling birds and stuff like that. Um, which, they have in those countries and like people don't have a problem with it because they or not as many people have a problem with it because they're killing off the wildlife that was found there first and these feral cats that get out and you know they never come back home or they are always living outside and they come back home once in a while or whatever like they're killing multiple birds a day and it can really decimate a population of birds in the area and you know, they have, people have traps for them, people shoot them, all kinds of stuff. And in the U.S., same thing. Like, you would never be able to, like, unimaginable to ever hurt a cat. Like, that would be unthinkable to most people. And it's just a different mindset. And people, uh, it just shows, like, their disconnectedness from, or the, the disconnect from nature. Like, they don't, they no longer enjoy what was natural and they're first they're they're siding with you know their pet cat and it's just a it's a pretty foreign concept i mean i don't get me wrong like i jonah doesn't but i enjoy like a pet dog or a pet cat like i i grew up with those and i like i see the enjoyment that you can get out of them but well would i be willing to like let my cat go and go kill birds and stuff? No, like I don't think that's appropriate. Yeah, when you look at, um, when you really think about it, and people do not, I'm probably like the only person in the world that has really thought about this. When you think about domestic wow. animals, whatever, whatever, <laughs> just know, just, just listen to this, because it's going to rock your world. Okay. Uh, and I, I, we could do a whole episode about this, but when you think about domestic animals, don't care what what type of domestic animal, cats. I'm watching a cat outside my house right now. Get it, get it. BB gun. Anyways, um, you know, cats, livestock, whatever. Domestic animals. And you think about the current issues in our world, particularly related to wildlife um, or even human health. Domestic animals are at the root of so many issues that it's disturbing, which is why I hate them all. <laughs> like, you know, when we're talking about these issues with feral cats or feral horses, um, feral dogs, you know, transmitting diseases to native carnivores, um, human health, you know, you know, the cattle thing here in the United States and, you know, the, and overgrazing of live domestic livestock around the world and competition with, um, native wildlife or, you know, the human wildlife conflict because predators are killing domestic livestock. You know, I mean, they're at the root of so many issues when you really think about it. And it's, 
it's pretty weird. And the weird thing, I I have this theory that, um, yes, people like horses. And I'm not saying that like, oh, horses are ugly or whatever. Like, yes, they're super majestic and, and beautiful. But I think that there's something about an animal that has a, a history of domestication that makes people like, I don't know, more attached to them or connected to them. Because like I was saying, you know, if this kind of thing was happening with Burmese pythons or black rats, like no one would go for it. They'd, they're all for killing it. But that's because those animals don't have like a, a relationship in human history. And all these domestic animals that, that, w- that we're talking about, they have these, you know, roots in human history and have seriously influenced human history. And I think that's why people are so attached to them and won't let them go. And even when they have the facts and, you know, you're trying to give them a reality check. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's a reason that the facts do not matter. There's a reason that like humans long, long time ago put so much work into domesticating these animals. Like they're, they're useful. Like having cattle or oxen around to do plowing or having horses around to get places faster or having dogs to hunt game with or protect livestock or stuff like that. I'm not sure where they got cats as useful. Um, (laughs) but the Egyptians, yeah, yeah, they just like to make statues on and stuff. No, I'm scared. Um, but like they had all these specific purposes and that's why they're domesticated and, it makes sense. But now we're getting to a point in some areas of the world or some cultures or urban centers or whatever, like, uh, they're not serving purposes or they're escaping or getting away and, um, they don't belong in these certain environments and ecosystems. They don't fit what has been there for a long time and they're completely disrupting it. And often, not just like disrupting it, because that might not have a bad connotation, but like they're negatively impacting it. And that's that's where it crosses the line. If it was just like, oh yeah, cats are out there, because there's other native small felids out there, it might not be as bad. But these cats are actually like, there never was a predator like them, and they're destroying these places or horses like they don't act like all the other native wildlife that's out there they're acting completely different and they're exploiting all these natural chains of events and they're negatively impacting them like severely and it's causing a big problem so yeah and you know now that these domestic animals don't serve their original purpose we've basically you know, justified keeping them and, you know, they've just become even more prolific to satisfy our own, you know, emotional desires. And it's, it's just so, it's so selfish. It it really is when you get to the root of it, it's, it's all about, you know, me and my emotions and me feeling good. And that's how these issues occur and they're completely avoidable. And if something is avoidable, like there's just no excuse for something to be happening if it's avoidable. Yeah. If we're all like freaking Spock from Vulcan, we would just be able to avoid all this stuff. That's me. Captain Logic. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, not all the time. I'm not a complete robot. It's um, been it's been um, wondered before if you are, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure people have like legit asked me if I'm a robot before because of things I've said. Um, but anyways, I want to give one more crazy example that I, I think is the icing on the cake and was the icing on the cake for making me motivating me to like want to do this episode right now. Although we had some delays. Um, but in February, um, some news broke about the, um, from Namibia about the ministry of environment and tourism culling spotted hyenas to protect a dwindling herd of feral horses in the Namib desert. So these horses in the Namib, um, which the Namib is an extremely hostile desert, if you are unaware um, or unfamiliar with it. I am. Okay, well, it's, you know, like the sand dunes and stuff, like in Africa, that's, that's like, imagine that. Um, Extremely harsh environment where horses do not belong and have never existed. Um, And so these horses were introduced... Um, or they're thought to have descended from some German breeding stock during World War One, because um, Namib- the modern country of Namibia has um, German origins. And so these, you know, if whether they were released or they escaped, these horses became established and have sort of been this like famous feral herd in the Namib that, you know, all the horse people love to go see because it's like so amazing to see horses on a desert landscape and um but they've the population has sort of dwindled in recent years because of drought obviously because they don't belong in the namib and also it's thought that hyena predation has been um causing the population to decline which is just like in my opinion is you know that's that's the way to go you know you don't have to do anything just let the hyenas <laughs> Kill the foals, and eventually the pop the small population is just going to die out. They're doing you it's a ideal. favor. Exactly, it's it's basically like you know, volu- they're volunteering. their it's volunteer work. You don't have to pay anything, and they're doing the work for you. Man, those are really um, some stand up hyenas. Exactly. Give them a medal. Exactly, that's what I say. But no, they decided to kill them, um, which is sh- shocking, um, because. You know, the local community and horse advocates, they treasure them, the herd of horses because, you know, this nostalgia. And then also, you know, people do go to that area specifically to see the horses. So it's supposed to be like, you know, part of the local economy. Although I would love to see some actual hard figures on how much this contributes to the local economy. Um, Nevertheless, the ministry began culling some spotted hyenas spotted hyenas are listed as vulnerable a vulnerable species they're being culled to protect an invasive species like imagine yeah yeah when you get down to the root of it 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 really does (laughs) it's just like it's just the most asinine thing like what is what is just a, a horrible sad step backwards for carnivore conservation did you just vulnerable species did you just land the word asinine 
because you like to use it a lot. No, like it's, I don't know. I use it all the time because I think most things in the world are asinine, particularly regarding this topic. <laughs> see. That's a good word. It is. I, like, I just don't know what other word to use to describe this without being like, you know, profane. Um, but like, imagine, okay, imagine. Okay, I'm ready. Lions. Imagine lions were killing these horses. Do you ever think, ever, 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 in this year 2019, people would be on board with killing lions to protect these horses? People don't even like one male lion, Cecil the lion, dying. Imagine like multiple lions being killed to protect horses. You know, people have to decide what do what do I think is what am I more emotionally attached to, the horses or the lions? They're kind of in the same boat for most people because <laughs> they're big and furry. But these poor hyenas, because they just have gotten such a bad rep, um, no one like people don't care. I mean, obviously the you know people that are based in logic and science like conservationists and biologists think this is absurd but you know imagine if it were lions it would never fly ever no probably not did i mention that it would never fly if it were lions uh i think you also mentioned that it's asinine too but i could you know <laughs> you might want to cover it's that just, again it's it's so sad it really it's just absolutely tragic yeah, but that's what you do. I think I told you before, but I listened to another podcast, and on there they had a theory that humans, the level that humans uh, are attached to an animal is based on the bigger the eyeball and the longer the eyelashes, the more people become attached to the animal, which it might. That might carry some, uh, that idea might carry water. I'm not sure though. But. It, there was a, um, a paper several years ago. Remember I read it when we were at Unity that looked at the conservation attention that species received. And they concluded that, um, yeah, the bigger the eyes and the more forward facing the eyes, the species was, species was more likely to receive more conservation attention and that's flounder they really like flounder a lot they have <laughs> eyes on their own side. <laughs> no they can go extinct for all the general public cares oh, okay. <laughs> but, no, but just because yeah. i think because maybe it's like more human the face is more human like but i mean that's obviously a subconscious thing it's not like people are choosing that but it it is when you think about that, you, like, yeah, like you said, that definitely carries weight and it's unfortunate. And how do we get away from that? Um, and I think it just means um, being more of dictators instead of listening to people. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Um, we're, I, we're just too far. We're just too deep into it. Like, how do you correct these issues? I, I don't know. Because emotions run humans and it's really tough to step away from emotions and uh make decisions that are based on the good of the entire in this case the herd or the entire population or the entire group like sacrificing some for the better of all like 
that's a controversial topic in itself. But in this case, that's what it is. And it's really tough for people to set aside those feelings. And, um, even when they're faced with facts and figures, it's tricky. I mean, I would, I know you'd like, you're like, kill all the horses. But like, for me, it's, it is tricky. Like, walking up to a horse and shooting it, like, that's tough. I've had to dispatch quite a few animals in my line of work, and that's not something I'm overzealous about. Uh, and it's, you wish you could approach it another way where you could avoid that kind of stuff. But I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a good solution other than calling right now. So. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm not like completely emotionless. Like, you know, if you gave me the gun, do you think that I could go out and kill a hundred thousand horses? Uh, um, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, yeah, like that is a. I don't want the horses to die just for the sake of dying. I want them to die because they are causing they're negatively affecting wildlife and wildlife is more important and you know eventually it's it's going to be affecting us think about you know the think about the dust bowl in the midwest from um in the 20th early 20th century yeah like some of these places are becoming like the dust bowl the way these horses are overgrazing and eroding the landscape and that's going to affect us eventually yeah people 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 have no foresight and this issue in particular is just ballooning yeah. and it's going to have unanticipated consequences. Well, like I, it's a smaller thing, but it's still part of the whole issue. But like I hunt, I enjoy hunting and I know like these wild horse populations are already affecting the main game species that people like to hunt out West. So like pronghorn, antelope, mule deer, um, elk, they all, all of them also share all these habitats with wild horses and burrows, and, um, they're already making the numbers of those species go down. And while that's not the only reason we should stop it, but that's also a contributing factor. Like, hunters don't make up a majority of the population by any means, but also, like, they're a major contributor to conservation and funding and all that kind of stuff. And so, like it is, it is already affecting us, even though it's in the middle of the desert or in some unknown mountain range or whatever that people don't visit very much. Like hunters see it, they're on the ground and they see it when they're out there. But ranchers see it, yeah. although yeah. we might not agree with everything that ranchers do. They see it; it affects them and their cattle and their production, and their opinions matter too. So it's it's here. It doesn't affect major metropolitan areas but the people who live out on the ground in those remote areas it definitely does already so yeah it's it's a tricky sticky not easily solved problem but it, well it helps i mean it, it could be easily yeah, solved it helps it, understanding the the social pressures it helps understanding the historical context and using that yeah. kind of perspective approaching also the ecological context like they don't belong in there um that also helps it so you would hope that some of this would help convince some of the force advocates to look at it a different way but we'll see maybe you'll get some uh hate mail 
know, and you'll <laughs> hopefully, have hopefully. reached those people. Um, yeah, you know, just to sort of touch on that, you know, there are, like I already, I briefly mentioned, there are these, you know, animal advocate groups like PETA and Humane Society of the United States that, you know, really try to wedge themselves in this, this topic because that's what they do. Yeah. And it's, it's important to, unfortunately, because of the internet age and um, this, the way the 21st century is, people don't know how to separate fact from fiction a lot of times. And what the Humane Society and PETA do is they use very like emotionally evocative language to try to win people over to their cause, even if they're presenting false information. And, you know, when you're uh, the true logical and scientific arguments revolving around this issue aren't going to be, you know, be using emotionally evocative language. And so if people don't understand how to separate it, just think about how it's written, because these these people at Pete and stuff, they really know how to write things. So they tug at your heartstrings, whether what they're writing is complete fiction or not. They don't care. And they know that you don't know if it's fiction or not. And so if you think about the way it's written, it can really inform you. Do you have an example of a completely emotionally charged written statements or whatever by them? Or Oh, I could... Not to put you I on the spot. Easily... I was curious if you had, like, pertaining to this topic or whatever. But... No, um, I don't. No, it's but. Right. We've seen their they, ads but on like, they, TV and stuff. They particularly like to talk, they like to use the word slaughter and like un, like murder and, you know, like violent words to portray the, the culling process, like yeah. to talk about that this is what people want to do. Um, and then they bring in the the fertility control and they just, you know, completely make up information um but when they're you know they just have they really just throw that word slaughter into like every sentence and and things like that to try to get you to be like this is horrible um yeah no i i've seen some of their stuff but it is it is interesting how you can like totally frame up an argument and convince people just on the language that you use and it's pretty powerful and uh i think we can also use that kind of emotionally charged language on our side too. Like these guys are literally eating themselves out of house. Like they're starving. They're dying of thirst. Like because they're overpopulated, because we're not controlling or managing them well, they're, they're starving and causing other animals to die of thirst because they're overpopulated. Like that's an emotionally charged issue. And people should realize that like, Oh, it's our fault. Like we need to step in. That's a valid argument as well to combat that. Yeah, so. this is true. But we don't like well, doing that as scientists or conservationists. Yeah, uh, no emotions allowed here. Mm-mm. Don't name your um, don't name your uh, study animals. <laughs> they get to attack. They only get ID numbers. <laughs> Yep, that's exactly. Yep, that's it. Um, well, anyways, we should probably wrap up. Yep. Um, so to sort of summarize, um, 
there's there is definitely this misguided nostalgia associated with feral horses and burrows, in, particularly in North America. But you know, the example from Namibia is also um, a good e- example. And you know, when you look at the history, like you said, it really puts it into context of the reality of the situation that these animals don't belong here. And that explains why they're having such a negative impact because they, they don't belong here and they don't belong in these ecosystems. Yeah. Nothing knows how to react to it. Exactly. This environment isn't used, isn't capable of supporting these animals, especially at these numbers. Yep. Um, and so, you know, really the, I mean, it's not even just my opinion, but when you look at the reality of the situation, the only effective management method is going to be culling, killing these horses. And when or if ever we'll get to that point, I don't know. Good for Australia that they are, you know, doing this. Um, but, you know, ecologically, the situation is getting worse. And this this issue is... All, probably always going to be a hot topic um, in the conservation world here in the United States. Yeah. So it's it has a lot of things are probably time. always going to be happening. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but when you really look at the science of it, you should be able to make a decision based on that because um, emotions aren't going to help guide <laughs> the solution to this issue. Yeah. I would say if I think you mentioned that you have quite a few like. Australian listeners, possibly. Yeah. Yep. If any of you guys uh, have insight into your programs or your issues and stuff like that surrounding the burrows or the horses, it would be interesting to hear from you guys and see an email or whatever. It'd be cool. Yeah. It was, it was particularly, I really wanted to include more details about other places in the world, but it was really challenging. Well, I just couldn't find it, which is why we didn't talk about it. Like it was challenging to find information on legislation in other countries like Australia or Namibia, like how in Namibia, how like legally, how are these horses protected? Couldn't find anything about that. Couldn't find details about, you know, management plans and the legality of culling in Australia. So um, definitely, yeah, that's a good idea. If yeah. people have more insight on this, I we would definitely be interested in hearing that. Yeah, that'd be neat. Cool. Um, okay. Well, thanks, Leon, for joining me. Yep, no problem. Um, Anytime. It was a good conversation. And if you want to um, learn more about the podcast or listen to other episodes, if you haven't in this huge hiatus we've had, you haven't caught up, um, you could find more episodes wherever you get podcasts or on our website, conservationchronicles.podme.com. If you want to connect with us, we're on Instagram and Facebook at Conservation Chronicles, or you can email us. Um, our email is conservationchronicles at gmail.com. And um, like I said in the beginning, we'll be having a few episodes um, in the next month or so before... I head to Zambia and we kind of have a a hiatus and not sure when we'll be back, but you'll get a couple episodes before I leave. I can tell you that much. Sweet. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. See ya. (laughs)